Today on Something You Should Know, a better place to keep your car keys when you're home asleep in your bed. Then, effective ways to learn anything better and easier and make it stick. Brain dumps are another really effective tool. So if you read an article, rather than re-read it, just do a brain dump. Start writing down all the things that you learned. It's about 50% more effective than simply re-reading that article. Also, ever wonder why lobster is often the most expensive thing on the menu? And quirks of the human brain. Some quirks make life easy, others make us crazy. One of the things I've often really quite liked about the brain is that the brain just reacts really badly to uncertainty of any sort. Like the brain really does not like not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing how things are going to pan out. And that's actually a really big source of stress. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I got an email the other day of someone who took a road trip this summer and and binge listened to episodes of Something You Should Know and, and wrote to tell me how much they enjoyed it. And and if you are a relatively new listener, I invite you to, to dig back into our archives. Depending on what platform you listen on, you know, there's 300 plus episodes available. And most of the things we talk about on this podcast are pretty evergreen. And if you haven't heard them, I invite you to go back and give a listen. First up today, where do you keep your keys when you go to bed at night? Well, you might want to keep them right on your nightstand. Why? Because if someone breaks in or you hear something outside that sounds like trouble, you can use your car security remote on your keychain to trigger the alarm in your car. Essentially, your car is an alarm system. If you hear someone, triggering that alarm will likely cause the bad guys to run away. It's also a good idea to keep your keys in your hand when you walk to your car for exactly the same reason, especially at night. If trouble happens, you can set off your alarm in your car, which causes everyone around to stop and look. 
And bad guys don't like when everyone turns around and looks. And that is something you should know. In your lifetime, you have to learn a lot. We have to learn things all the time, in school, at work, with your hobbies and interests. There are skills and knowledge that you have to absorb. And I'm sure it is your experience, as it is mine, that some people learn better than others. I know that I learn some things better than other things. And a lot of what we learn, we forget if we don't use it very much. So when it comes to learning, what's the best way to learn? Are there shortcuts that can help you master something quicker and better? Here to discuss this is Ulrich Boser, who has really studied the science of learning. He is founder and CEO of the Learning Agency. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and he's the author of the book, Learn Better. Hey, Ulrich, so what is learning? What does it mean to learn? At a high level, what we want to do when we learn something is to change the way that we think about it to change our practice. So if you haven't created some sort of change, you haven't learned. And that's why taking more active forms of learning, like talking to yourself, there are a number of reasons why talking to yourself is beneficial, even if it's a little weird. But one of the reasons that it's beneficial is that it slows you down and makes that learning just a little bit more active, right? You avoid that experience that I think we've all had where you've read an article and halfway through you're like thinking about, you know, how the warriors are going to do next year, right? You're not really paying attention. And so taking more active steps can really improve your learning because it keeps you a little bit more engaged. So in addition to talking to yourself, what kind of active steps can you do so that you're not just reading and then realizing halfway through that you you just paid no attention to what you read? Brain dumps are another really effective tool. So if you read an article and you did pay attention, rather than reread it, put the article away and then just do a brain dump. Start writing down all the things that you learned. If the article is about COVID or politics or golf games, just write down everything that you learned. It's about 50% more effective than simply rereading that article because you're, one, pulling these things out of memory. Two, when you have to write it down, you, you have to kind of make some connections, right? You're not just writing down all the facts. You're trying to put it in some more coherent way. The problem with this approach is that it's a little bit more difficult. I had this experience recently, Mike, where I was practicing for a talk. And so I went into a room and I had my notes in front of me and I just read the notes. I really depended on the notes. And I just like basically slapped myself on the forehead and was like, wow, you know, I wrote this whole book arguing for more effective forms of learning, whether it's brain dumps or talking to yourself. But then I change environments and I'm using this more uh, less effective kind of passive way of learning. And so if you're practicing for a, a speech, you're much better off. Once you have a basic sense of the talk, just putting the notes away, going into an empty room and forcing yourself just to give that talk because it's, again, a a more active way of learning. Don't you wonder why nobody teaches that in junior high school or high school? Like, okay, so since I want you to learn this, here's how I want you to go about learning it rather than I need you to learn chapter seven and we'll see you tomorrow for a quiz. 
this is why I'm here. This is what I feel like I get really excited about my life's purpose is like, no, we should be teaching this. I think the problem sometimes is that, you know, it's, it's a little annoying to be pedantic recently. Well, not recently, maybe it was a, a year or two ago, I got a note from my daughter's teacher who asked, you know, what my daughter's learning style was. And I had this moment of like, do I be the annoying parent who sends, you know, research citations in the response or do I just let it go? The bigger takeaway here, though, is that this learning process, figuring out how to learn can really make us more effective at just about anything. And it's an incredibly powerful tool to have in your your toolbox. Explain this idea that because I think people believe that, that there are visual learners and auditory learners and, and you say no. So how do we know that's not true? <laughs> well, first, we have to define what it means when people say that they have a certain learning style. And what people say when they have a learning style is that they learn better visually or they learn better auditorily or they're kinesthetic learners, right, that they learn physically. And first, if you just start to think about it, it doesn't really make sense. If you want to be a pro soccer player, just listening to soccer podcasts, as much as I love podcasts, is not going to get you to be an effective soccer player, right? You're Even if you are an auditory learner, you're going to just go out and, and play. So one thing is the domain, what you want to learn, has a huge impact on whether or not you should learn visually or learn auditorily. The other thing, and you hear people often say that they're a visual learner, is that our visual cues are just incredibly powerful, right? If you look around in the room that you're in right now, even if you're in a radio room, your bedroom, your visual cues are much more powerful than auditory. Auditory is, of course, sequential. If I just start jumbling my words out of order, it's going to be very hard to understand. So what I think people are saying when they talk about learning styles is really this idea that people are different. And I want to be totally clear. People are very different. They have different areas of interest. They have different areas of working memories. They have different motivations. But we don't really have a really robust language to talk about how people are different, especially when it comes to learning. So we resort to this other language. That's just not true. And lots of research uh, on this idea where they've told people, you know, tell us your you know, learning style and we'll teach you how to be good at X or Y. And, and uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And so what does work? Besides what we've talked about, which are two things, active learning and having a learning process where you're setting goals and reflecting on your learning. Another really helpful thing is analogies. Analogies are this funny thing where it also makes us go back to high school and think about that English teacher who tried to push us to find an analogy or a metaphor. But at the end of the day, analogies are at the core of any type of thinking because we think in terms of categories. And so one way to improve your learning is to use analogies. And people use analogies a lot, but they don't really think about them. You know, when you hear new business pitches, people are saying things like, oh, it's like Uber, but for haircuts or Uber, but for childcare. Uber butt for childcare is probably a, a bad idea, but these analogies are in a really important way to learn. And so if you're trying to learn something new, engage in that compare and contrast, try and figure out what the deep idea is and how you can understand it more deeply rather than those surface details is in a really effective way to learn. That compare and contrast, incredibly powerful. What about aptitude? Are some people just 
wired better to to do something and and that's why you know um great athletes are great athletes and great composers are great composers because they have something that other people don't have or could anybody get there if they really wanted to so one question is you know nature or nurture is it all about biology or is it all about the environment in which you grow up in People love this debate, and there are really loud voices of people who say, hey, it's all about nature, it's all about nurture. I think when you look at the research, it turns out that it's complicated, and that when you look at people who are like great composers, right, whether it's Mozart or someone else, it turns out that his father had this incredibly powerful impact on him and trained him really early. And I think this mix is really important, that it's both nature and nurture. The other thing that I would say is that the bell curve is really powerful. And what the bell curve says is that about 90% of us are pretty much the same. And so when we think about, hey, you know, can you get better at, you know, Excel pivot tables or these, you know, things where people get really frustrated very easily, most of us are the same. And so we can reach that same level of heights. Yes, every once in a while, there is a LeBron James who can have a, a, a particularly unusual set of skills, but most of us are the same. And it's a matter of practice. It's a matter of these environments, all these other things that really can make a powerful difference when it comes to expertise and success. We're talking about learning and how to learn anything better. My guest is Ulrich Bozer. He's author of the book, Learn Better. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Ulrich, I've always thought that interest level plays a huge part in this. Because like you say, we could all get good at, at uh, you know, Excel tables and whatnot. But if you're not interested in it, where's the motivation? And, and if you're not motivated to do it, you're not going to do it, so you're not going to get good at it. Right. And then the other thing about interest is that the more you know about something, the more you find out a little more interesting detail that makes you more interested in about it. Right. So interest is this and motivation is this weird circle where once you start to know about something, finding out that next little fact, and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. But I don't follow golf very much. And so you know, if I find out a new detail that might be really of notable to a golf expert, eh, I'm just going to shrug my shoulders. So that interest and motivation, which is something, again, that we can get at home or we can get from where we grow up, really important. And it's also something that will propel us for the rest of our lives. But if you 
one day went and played golf and you hadn't before and found out you really liked the, the game and you liked playing it, then all of a sudden your interest might increase and then you might get even better at it. I think that's you know totally true. So once you get started, you gain more interest, especially after you get after that little moment of beginner angst and fear. The thing that always surprises me about interest is that people who are interested in something have a really hard time understanding that other people aren't interested <laughs> in it. And that the best way to bring people into their into something that you're excited about. So let's say you're excited about well, here, let me give a, a different example. You know, when I see and hear about college professors teaching about statistics, you know, they're, they, of course, love statistics, don't get why other people lo don't love statistics. And then they're like, well, if I just sprinkle a little baseball on this, and then it's baseball meets statistics, but not everyone's interested in baseball either. And, and what the research shows on this is that if you can bring people in on their own vector, if you can bring people in on their own interests it's far more effective. And so there's been these wonderful studies where they want to teach people statistics and they just say to them, write an essay about how you think you'll use this statistics later. Inevitably, some people might talk about gambling. Some people might talk about baseball, but some people might aspire to be nurses and say, hey, you know, I, I just really care about, as is relevant today, epidemics. And Allowing people to find their own areas of, of interest, I think, is really important. And when you look at really charming political leaders, you know, we can go either way on uh, Bill Clinton as a political leader. But when you see him being his like charming way, a lot of it was like trying to figure out what people are interested in and then leverage that instead of just thinking, oh, if I mention the Kardashians, this will make this dry topic like Excel pivot tables a lot more exciting. <laughs> Well, it might, but uh, <laughs> why not? Depend, depends on your audience. So the, one of the things that's always uh, kind of fascinated me about this is that, that we go through this process of going to school and learning all these different things. And, and everybody struggles, I think, with something. You know, some people are good at, at history and some people are good at math and and, and But we make people take subjects that they're not interested in, that they'll likely never use, that, you know, you've got to take a class in English, so you, get, you take, you know, uh, in the 19th century poetry, and you'll not, you don't... We make people learn things that, that they have no interest in and that they will never, ever use in their life. Why not let them learn things that excite them, that get them interested in the morning? All of us have this experience, right? When you reflect back onto what we learned, we are like, why did I possibly spend so much time on these, you know, little, little details? I think on one side, I totally agree. And at some point we just, especially with younger students, just ha have to let them go with their passions. But I'm going to offer a little bit of a defense about that thin spread of knowledge because Oftentimes, when you hear people talking about learning today, they're like, facts don't matter anymore. That everything is on the internet. You can look up at it on Wikipedia. We don't need these basic things to know about, you know, what date, um, you know, the Civil War began or these really what appears to be mundane facts. And what it turns out, and this is really important to this idea of learning, is that content 
Just knowing something is really important to know new things. And let me give you an example. Haben Sie heute Morgen gefrühstückt? That's German for have you eaten breakfast this morning? Now, you can pull your phone out of your pocket and look up each of those words. But unless you have them memorized, unless you have them top of mind, it's very hard to speak German. And this turns out to be true about chemistry or history, that unless you have some basic knowledge, it's hard to become an expert or it's hard to even learn something new without some of that background knowledge. So I think it is important to give people a, a broad amount of information so that they can figure out where they want to be interested so they can read the newspaper and figure out some basic details and, and interest themselves. But too often schools are too focused on these real facts and just pushing details for the sake of the details without keeping in mind this broader thing, which is motivation and, and what's going to uh, really push people to that next level. Okay, so I took, I don't know how many years of French in junior, in grammar school, junior high, and high school, and I can't speak a lick of it because, well, I don't know exactly why, but I, my guess is that teaching it in a class at a school two hours a week is a horrible way to learn French, and the real way to learn French is to go to France and speak it and immerse yourself in it. And that the taking French class seemed like a big waste of time to me. I'd say two things. One, let's be clear about the best way to learn. It is to go to France. It is to have a tutor. Those things are really expensive. They're hard to scale. Giving everyone a tutor, giving everyone a chance to go to France, really hard. So we're stuck often with classrooms. And no doubt we can make them better. The other thing that I'll say, and I find this really interesting, not sure if you do, but we also know why you can't speak French now. And, and the fact is, is that we all forget and we all forget at a regular rate. And not only that, this is built into our, our brains. And the reason is that our brain is built to forget things. And it does it so that you can remember where you put your cell phone and lost it today, not where you lost it last week. And the difference is pulling things from memory. Another way to think about this is that you've never forgotten everything. If I were to come to you and I knew, uh, and I hope I don't, your high school locker number, more than, more than chance would suggest you would remember that. Maybe you've had this experience remembering you know, the telephone number of a, a grammar school friend. What your brain does, it's a little bit like your attic. You know, If you never bring down those holiday ornaments, it just goes further, further in the back, gaining more and more dust. But if you want to remember something, it's pulling it out of that memory attic. And that if you were to go to France today, much more than someone who never took any French, like myself, it would take some time. But eventually those words would creep out of the attic and you'd, you'd get better a lot faster than, say, someone like me who was stuck learning Latin, uh, which I also can't remember. Yeah, well, Latin, really? Yeah. I didn't know they taught that anymore. I mean, that's... It's hard to go somewhere and speak that. That, that. That's that's true. You at least have the advantage that when you go to Paris, a couple of words like merci will, will come rolling off of your tongue fairly quickly. So it sounds like what you're saying is that people have this idea that, well, I'll never need to know this later. And when you look back at, at school, you know you forgot so much. And anybody who's a parent and tried to help their child, as I've done with my fourth grader and my high schooler, 
help them with their homework, you don't remember almost anything. But it sounds like what you're saying is that that's not the test. That's not the test you should be using as to whether or not you should have learned something. But if that's not the test, what is that? Then why are we learning it? So what I would say is you learn some of these facts and you simply forgot them. But that if you sat down and, you know, watched a couple of YouTube videos, listened to a couple of podcasts about math or science or whatever the details are that your fourth grader and high schooler are, are learning, a lot of it would come back to you. The issue is that you just haven't used it. So it goes back into the deep recesses of your brain. You know, there's there's was always this debate, I remember, of, you know, should we allow kids to use calculators? Because if they use calculators, they won't have the skill of adding, subtracting, dividing numbers. And and then the argument is, well, but they won't need the skill because the calculator will... Who, who doesn't have a calculator? So... Right. Um, but but is there something inherently good about knowing how to divide and add and subtract, or 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 is the argument that everybody has a calculator is good enough? The best single predictor of what you're able to learn is what you already know, and this goes back to this motivation issue that we talked about earlier. Just having some knowledge about something really allows you to learn more about it. So this idea that no one needs to learn any addition and subtraction anymore because they have a calculator or a cell phone is I think really short sighted because you need these numbers just to engage in, in higher order math. But at the same time, it's really easy, especially when we think about tests in school, it's just easy to test these very rote bits of information as opposed to richer information that we really want people to know. So if we think about, you know, uh, the study of war, you could just get really interested in knowing all the facts. And that's interesting, helpful. But really what we want to know about are analogies. We want to know about patterns. And so you're far more, you're going to gain a lot more about thinking about, you know, what is the role of speed in war? And then, you know, we can start thinking about, oh, you know, the Germans used uh, speed to win World War II uh, in other areas, like World War One, it was much more slower. How does that role of speed play in, in other wars? Why is it important? When is it important? Those types of compare and contrast, thinking about analogies are much richer ways to really understand a topic, whether it's math or science or obscure uh, World War II battles. Well, you've put some clarity on a topic that I've always found a bit vague, frankly, that this whole idea of, you know, you need to learn something. Study this so you can really learn it. So what does that mean, and what's the best way to do that? And you've really helped clarify that. Ulrich Boser has been my guest. He is founder and CEO of The Learning Agency, a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, and he's author of the book, Learn Better. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Ulrich. Cool. Well, keep up the great work, and really thrilled that you guys are um, engaging on this. Thank you. I'm certain you have wondered about why and how your brain works. Why sometimes are your memories very accurate and other times your memories are way off? How do other people affect the way you think? What is your personality? Where does it come from? These are things I think everybody thinks about or wonders about from time to time. And Dr. Dean Burnett has explored and researched all of this, 
Dean is a neuroscientist working as a tutor and lecturer based at Cardiff University's Institute of Psychological Medicine and Clinical Neurosciences. He's also author of the book, Idiot Brain, What Your Head Is Really Up To. Hi, Dean. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So start with just an example of what you mean by what your head is really up to. Well, um, travel sickness is my go-to example. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a weird thing whereby just moving on something makes you sick. What, what's happened there is that you know, the, the senses are telling your brain that uh, different things. Your eyes are saying we're fine because uh, you know, we are. You know, we, we, are, we are in a stationary environment, um, especially if you're in a ship or an airplane where you can't see things going by, and your body's still, but your ears, the balance sensors, are going all over the place because they respond to physics, so they're saying you're moving. The brain's getting conflicting messages, and you know this is related to the fundamental parts of the brain, which are very to say you know old school and the only thing they can think of is that you've been poisoned you're hallucinating so they make you want to be sick so cars and vehicles and trips make you feel sick because the brain doesn't know what's happening at a fundamental level one of the things that the brain does or that we think does well is it remembers the past it, it our past that we we have mm-hmm. very fond vivid memories very horrible memories but but we we assume that they're that they're accurate Yes, we assume that, but uh, they're not completely inaccurate. It's just that it's more of a gist than you know, hard, detailed specifics because the memory is very flexible. The more times you think about something and sort of tell a story about it and elaborate it, that'll add, be added to the original memory and it'll change over time. Or you can have an emotional experience about something which will change a past memory. So say if you met someone at a party and you just met them in passing, didn't think anything of it, you know, that'll be a very neutral memory. You'll barely remember them. You see their face on the news five years later, they've been charged with being a serial killer. That becomes a very vivid memory all of a sudden. So your memory is very flexible and you know, can be adapted and updated all the time, and it usually is. And a lot of that's to do with emotions and experiences. But it's not a hard and fast, concrete guide to the past, no. What is something that, that the human brain isn't particularly good at or doesn't, doesn't handle well? One of the things I've often really quite liked about the brain, which seems to apply to everyone, is that the brain just reacts, the human brain, I mean, in particular, of course, I mean, it reacts really badly to uncertainty of any sort. Like the brain really does not like not knowing what's going to happen or not knowing how things are going to pan out. And that's actually a really big source of stress in, in the modern world. And it's sort of got the point where the human brain, it's, it's like become a victim of its own success because... When, if you're a simpler creature, like a primitive like rodent or anything in the wild, you think uncertainty is in like, what's that noise? What's that shape? What's going on? Where can I, am I going to find food today? These are genuine reasons to be stressful, but they're very sort of straightforward. And they can trigger the threat parts of the brain, which make you feel stress and anxiety and, and the fear response. But the human brain is so much more capable of understanding possibilities like the possibility that you lose your job the possibility that the economy will you know, go downhill or the possibility of a natural disaster many in, in 10 years time these are things which don't necessarily happen which may never happen but they can still stress us out uh, because we don't know and not knowing stuff causes us to be stressful and you know it's become sort of a vicious cycle of not knowing and becoming upset about that and then you know these are all things which may never happen but we can still worry about them and that's a sort of like a, a, a downside of having this much cognitive power in the human brain 
Well, and I've heard psychologists say that most of those things never do happen. It, it, it's this, this rumination, this ability to, what if this happens and what if this happens? The chances are they never will, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't make you feel any better. That's exactly the problem. Yeah, like these are, so much of modern life is stressful. And people will say, we have it better than we've ever had. You know, human existence is far more comfortable than any time in the past. That's not... That's not to be no. That's not in question. It's a case of that's not how the brain works. It's not, it's not a, it doesn't work in, t- in terms of okay. So this could be worse. I mean, objectively, there are you know, things in the past were worse than now. It's you know, your your life is your baseline, and things getting worse are what causes you to be stressful. And like you say, we are just so prone to it. We are you know, anxious creatures, and there's even the process of counterfactual thinking in that you can know that something didn't happen so like you can worry about you know crossing the road at a busy junction or like missing your flight and you, you know you can cross the road and be fine or you catch your plane but you can still worry about the possibility that you didn't do that even though demonstrably you it didn't happen it can't happen now it's in the past and but we still worry about these things because when we think of what if what if what if i did that we realize how close we came to disaster and that still causes us stress so yeah we are a very nervous species by and large thanks to the way the brain is just constantly looking for things to worry about it seems to be hardwired into our being what's another thing the brain does that you find interesting Another particular example I like is phobias in that, you know, these are irrational fears of things which, by and large, aren't harmful. Like people, arachnophobia is a very common example in that people are afraid of spiders when the spider is like a tiny fraction of the size of a human and poses them no actual danger. But it's an evolved tendency, you know, spiders in the wild were poisonous and so on. But I mean, phobias of anything like heights, enclosed spaces or even something random like clowns or whatever it is. Now, logically, these things aren't dangerous. So... If we're exposed to them and nothing happens to us, what should happen is the brain goes, I was afraid of that. Then I encountered it, interacted with it, nothing bad happened. Therefore, I will learn that they are not dangerous. And that's what people think should happen. Like, like, like face your fears idea. But that isn't what, what happens because the brain's fear response is so ingrained and so powerful to this, you know, this source of the phobia that say if you're afraid of spiders, you sit on a table and then a tiny little spider comes along. It's a harmless situation, but your brain goes, spider, hits the alert button. So like your heart rate goes up, you start freaking out, you start hyperventilating, your adrenaline goes through the roof, you start screaming and gibbering, you jump away. And that's what the brain remembers. It's sort of like, right, I encountered a spider. I had this absolute meltdown. So clearly spiders are dangerous. That's logic, that is. And that's why phobia has become sort of self-sustaining and self-perpetuating. And curing them is a really long, drawn-out, gradual process because you have to get someone used to something without setting off this highly ingrained but really unhelpful fear response. So, yeah, the, the brain becomes its own worst enemy by constantly looking for threats. It's kind of paradoxical in a way. Is there anything... If you flip that around, is there anything that, like, the brain, because mostly we've been talking about the weird and uh, somewhat destructive things the brain does, but what does the brain do that's just phenomenal? Oh, there's so many things. I mean, the very concept of empathy in that you can see someone else and from the very subtle cues that they're giving off, without even knowing your brain is detecting all that and using a very sophisticated network of internal uh, you know, connections and mechanisms and nuclei in different parts of the brain. It's deciphering the emotional content of the, someone's like just physique or someone's bodily movements and it, all without us knowing it. 
And then it causes us in certain circumstances to feel that emotion too. So emotions can be shared between two different people. Without, it's, not, it's not something we have to learn. It's just something that happens to us. It happens to us from a very young age. Even newborn babies show an ability to do this. Like they can recognize when someone else is distressed or they can recognize other babies' cries from their own. And you know, they, they, so we're talking newborns. They haven't actually had a chance to learn anything yet. So it's clearly ingrained. But yeah, this, this, it's, it's almost like mind reading, but it's not. It's, if anything, it's more impressive because you know, reading a mind would just be looking at something and seeing what it says. Whereas it's all these subtle cues we're constantly putting out without realizing you know, which betray our emotional state and other people can pick these up and experience the emotion themselves in order to share you know, an, an empathic feeling and it's something which you know, we can't we can't you know, build devices or machines which can do that yet because it's just beyond our technology so it's really quite but it's, it's ongoing it's just like, it's like a basic function of the brain but it's it's also quite mind-blowing i would say one of the things I wonder about is the brain seemingly is like a sponge. It absorbs things from the environment that you live in and the people around you. And that that if you grew up somewhere else or if you lived in another part of the world, you might be a very different person because of your surroundings, both the physical surroundings and, and the people in your life. Absolutely, yes. I mean, the social aspect of humans is, it can't, it can't be overstated, like you say. I mean, it, there's a lot of the data suggests that we are the most social species out of all species, because although we, like you say, we have a tendency to be unpleasant to each other, we are, considering how many of us there are and how much time we spend together, we are a lot better than pretty much every other species, like our closest evolutionary cousin, the chimpanzee, they can handle groups of like maybe 30 plus, many more than that. They start getting really violent and angry and doing some serious damage to each other, whereas we don't. We can have like stadiums full of people just sat side by side watching the same thing. And it's no, that's very impressive for a species to do that. And there's even some, you know, a lot of evidence suggesting that this is why we've evolved the way we have, because human tribes are so social and cooperative that they became too dominant in in the wild so the normal things which would shape your evolution uh, didn't hold anymore like you don't need to avoid predators because the tribe takes care of that you don't need to find mates because the tribe's all around you and finding food and so on so the things which drove our evolution were more social in nature making the most friends being the most sociable making maintaining the most relationships and all of which requires more brain power than just brutal survival so yeah so like so much of our brain is dedicated to forming and maintaining and engaging with other people and relationships and things like the striatum is a very social um social neuroscientific uh, region which uh, contains lots of areas which you know if you have a positive social interaction you experience a genuine reward and just just interaction alone is very rewarding and rejection is painful on a very real level because that's just how our brains work we are incredibly social when things go wrong, when there's mental illness or when something horrible happens that, you know, a person commits a terrible crime or what, what, what's going, is it just, is it, what is it? Yeah, well, obviously there's, there's a lot of uh, different, op- different options there. Like if you think of in terms of mental health problems, the most common ones would be depression and anxiety. So depression is probably the go-to for all things um, mental health when it comes, when it goes wrong. Uh, a lot of different uh, theories of what's going on there with depression. Like the, the most common one was the monoamine hypothesis for a while, which is the one that says it's all to do with an imbalance or a deficiency in neurotransmitters. 
but more recent data suggests that that there's a part that's a part of it, but that's actually a small component of the overall um, of the overall big picture. And current data suggests that it's part of the brain. Depression is caused by parts of the brain becoming essentially worn out, uh, not sort of broken, but like overtaxed by constant stimulation by stress and the stress chemicals is constantly hitting the part of the brain which is responsible for controlling mood and emotion and because the, the part the brainstem is a more fundamental part which regulates these stress chemicals but because modern life is so stressful they can often become confused and the system which stops them being produced is sort of it sort of becomes short circuits and then we end up being constantly bombarded with stress chemicals and and this causes the responsive neurons to be overexcited and they become exhausted essentially and I think depression isn't necessarily you know sadness or low mood although it is that it's constant low mood it has to be there for at least two weeks or more uh, you know so that's why that's, that's the difference between generally being sad or having a low mood and being genuinely clinically depressed is when you can can't stop being depressed and anxiety is sort of related it's like this when the amygdala part of the brain which is responsible for fear and threat perception and emotion that you know the ability to shut that off becomes compromised for some reason so you're constantly stressed constantly heightened constantly alert for dangers even though there's nothing to be afraid of but yeah so there's so many different ways which the brain can and regularly does go wrong that you know there's there's <laughs> there's no real way to summarize that in a podcast it, it's that's a whole i mean that's been like several hundred years of science and counting of they've tried to try to you know, condense that into, into one understandable whole but is it the case where at least sometimes it's not that the brain something goes wrong the the, the wiring from the factory is wrong I think that that's where it comes down to the difference between psychiatric and neurological disorders. I mean, a neurological disorder is when something in the workings of the brain has gone, like I say, wrong, like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, and other neurological like epilepsy would be a neurological disorder. It's you know, part of the brain of firing when they shouldn't be and causing a mess. So, like those are those will come under the neurological uh, heading, but. They also have psychiatric or psychological problems with them because obviously that's going to cause uh, problems with the way the brain is running. Whereas psychiatric or psychological disorders, however you want to define them, is technically nothing wrong with the brain. It's just being made to do the wrong thing, if that's a way to discern it. So, I, mean, I guess you could argue it's like, you know, some people hesitate to do this, but if you look at the, the brain as like a computer example, um, a neurological problem would be a hardware problem. Something's wrong with the processor. Something's wrong with the RAM. Whereas a psychiatric problem would be a software problem. There's a bad, there's bad code, or there's a virus or a bug in the system which is making it do bad things or like unhelpful things. But if there's, you know, if you've got a virus, you don't strip out the motherboard. You don't you know, try and fix it. You you give it different instructions, and that's sort of where the distinction lies. As as always, it's more complex than that. But that's a general good rule of thumb to look at when it comes to is the brain going wrong or not, or is it just being told to do unhelpful things? The comparison of the brain to a computer is that a reasonable comparison? A lot of neuroscientists don't like it because it does bring up. Um, a lot of assumptions which are unhelpful in terms of how the brain works. Like the brain is nowhere near as <clears throat> compartmentalized and organized as a computer in that you know, there's no memory bank, there's no like uh, no files. Or, but I'm personally okay with it because at present, 
it's a useful analogy because you know, it helps people explain what the brain is doing. But there's nothing else really like that in the wider world, which people can relate to and understand. In that, you know, a computer is a thing which manipulates information, which stores memory, which you know creates visual things, and the brain does all that too. It does it in very different ways, but as a sort of you know, gateway analogy, yeah, I think it's fine. But it's, you know, if you start saying the brain is like a computer and therefore we should treat it like a computer, then you're going to run into problems because the brain doesn't really operate along those lines at all. I mean, like there's lots of sci-fi about people uploading their minds onto computers and so on and so on. But that's way beyond anything we're capable of right now because you know, electronic technology and ne neurology just don't work in the same way. They're fundamentally incompatible and need to, there's a lot of work needs to be done just to get them to be able to talk to each other in any useful, in any useful way. So one more thing before we go, one more thing that the brain does that, that's either amazingly great or amazingly horrible. Well, sleep is actually probably a very good one because it's one of those things everyone well, takes for granted. It's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental process. We need to do it. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's scientifically very rich and very confusing. You think it's just a period of unconsciousness. The brain is shut off for a bit, the bare minimum of functioning. And it isn't. The sleep is incredibly complex. The sleeping brain is often as active or more active than the waking brain. It's just that the body is shut down because sleep is when the brain does essentially all the maintenance it needs to do after, uh, you know, after a, day's, day's, a day of experience. And the body needs rest, but the brain is just chugging away. During REM sleep, that's when <clears throat> all the like cellular, cellular debris, the waste of all the complex processes that take place in the brain, that's all cleared away better because it, you know, things have stopped and all our memories accumulated in the day are sort of sorted and organized and consolidated better and uh, you know, things become more attuned and you know, the, brain, oh, the brain does rest as well, but not all of it does. So sleeping is actually a very, very complex and important process. But you know, the theories to why we sleep are you know, very many and varied. And it's an evolutionary really interesting that it's so important that things like hibernating animals when you hibernate, you're actually more comatose than sleeping. But sleep is so important, hibernated animals need to wake up a bit in order to sleep. And that became quite confusing. I tried to work that one out. So, yeah, so even when the brain's seemingly not doing anything, it's doing a great deal. And a lot of it's really impressive. Well, it must be because, I mean, think of how much time we spend sleeping. I mean, supposedly a third mm. of our lives were out of it. So it must be doing something important. Yeah, yeah. So again, it's so important. Like animals have evolved ways to do it when it's really unhelpful. Like um, dolphins and migratory birds have uni-hemispheric uni sleep. Like one half the brain sleeps while the other half runs the body and then they swap over so they don't sink and drown or you know, just fall out of the sky while, while flapping. So clearly there is something deeply important about sleep if even when you know, it's really unhelpful, we still have to do it. Wonder why we can't do that? Why can't we half rest our, half our brain and then and then the other, and then we'd never have to go to bed? Well, like, oh, that's, that's that'll always be the dream, of course. But we do need um, we, we have very powerful, complex brains, so we need kind of both working in tandem to to function. But we do some evidence, so we do do it to a certain extent. There's something called the the first night effect, whereby if you sleep somewhere new. The first night is never as restful in as, as your own your own bedroom is because you know there's there's that part of your brain which is still ticking away monitoring for threats when you're asleep which knows that you're in a different environment like you know, the, the the space is all wrong the sound the acoustics are all wrong and that you know that stops you from ever becoming too 
fundamentally asleep you don't relax too much and that's why like, even if it's like the best possible hotel or the most comfortable bed the planet has to offer you still won't sleep as well on the first night as you will subsequent nights when you're a bit more used to it so yeah there's always a part of your brain which is sort of watching out for things going on and sometimes it gets a little bit carried away well it's always working isn't it your brain's always doing something or trying to do something and it's interesting to get some insight into exactly what it's doing Dean Burnett's been my guest. He is a neuroscientist who is a tutor and lecturer based at Cardiff University's Institute of Psychological Medicine and Clinical Neuroscience, and he's author of the book Idiot Brain, What Your Head Is Really Up To. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. If you go to a seafood restaurant and they have lobster, lobster is probably one of, if not the most expensive things on the menu. Well, why is lobster so expensive? According to the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative, there are several reasons. Lobster farms are pretty much impossible. Lobsters have to be caught in the wild in the ocean, and they're not always easy to find. Then they have to be transported alive, and that's expensive. 83% of lobsters come from Maine, and most of the rest come from Massachusetts or Canada. But lobster wasn't always expensive. Native Americans once used them for fertilizer. Pilgrims and the colonists considered them a poor man's food. Lobster were so abundant that they would literally wash ashore in piles. They initially gained their status during the Gilded Age in New York City and Boston, and have remained that way ever since. Finally, there's another element in play. Every restaurant knows that when you add something expensive to a menu, it makes everything else look more appealing and reasonably priced. So that's another incentive to keep the price of lobster high. And that is something you should know. If you have a friend who's the curious type and likes to learn new things, I'm sure they would enjoy this podcast. So share the link and tell a friend. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.